Hello and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast. Episode 9, To Be or Not To Be, 1983. Super 70 is a podcast meant to sync to play along with the film we discuss. You don't have to, though, and can go on listening without watching anything. I would, however, recommend that you watch the film we are discussing before listening to the Super 70 podcast. You can download the commentary from iTunes, SoundCloud, or my website at www.thatdylandavis.com. I'm Dylan Davis. I will be using the initial DVD release of To Be or Not To Be from 2005. If you plus play on that DVD now, this podcast should sync with the rest of the film. This is one of the first Brooks films from Mel Brooks. To Be or Not To Be follows a string of hits starting with Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, but also includes some very well thought out parodies, such as High Anxiety and History of the World. This is the only film that Mel Brooks and his wife Anne Bancroft star in together, and thus it is the only film in which they star with their son, Max Brooks, whom I will point out if I am quick enough. Mel Brooks is seen as a kind of too-late vaudeville buffoon who makes throwaway parody comedies, and I've always felt like he has Rodney Dangerfield disease. He never gets any respect. Yet everyone in my age group has seen Spaceballs. Not Blazing Saddles, which I've seen a handful of times, but Spaceballs, which I've seen a million times. And just like Spaceballs, To Be or Not To Be is not a throwaway parody. It's not even a parody. It's a remake. But it's a remake with something to say. I am a fan of the original film, which we will get into later, but in researching everything about the first film, it is very rare that anyone mentions this one. And if they do, it's usually a footnote about a failed movie in the back of a book. That's unfair. There's a lot going on here in this attempt to modernize a warning, a dire warning. And people miss it. They see the film and they see either a throwaway, comedy by over-actors, or they see it as a bad remake. Even critics, and they dismiss what Brooks has done in the past, and they don't think that he could possibly be doing anything deeper like he did with The Producers or Blazing Saddles, the ending of which is almost recreated in this film. I'm hoping to watch this with you and point out some things that will hopefully change your mind about the film. Yes, it's a parody, but it's not a throwaway. The opening with the stage posters presents you with the idea that Brooks is Bronski, that he and his wife own a theater in Warsaw, and this may seem a boring intro, but it gears some people up for a change in the film from the original, which we'll get into more in depth later. But the Turos from the first film are now the Bronskis. Bronski sounds more Polish, but also sounds a little bit more Jewish. 
the map of Europe itself is a refresher, but also a repeat of just about every animated map you've ever seen in any film describing the outbreak of war. The best one I've seen is the opening of The Enemy at the Gates with Jude Law and Rachel Weisz. We don't see many of them anymore, which is a shame because we're moving farther away from the war, and as a result, people lose touch with the immediacy and the danger of war that hung over the world, not just for a few months in 1939, but for years before the war. This is an unconventional movie in some very unconventional ways. We start off with the Bronski Theater in Warsaw, Poland. It's the summer of 1939. Bronski and his wife are played by Mel Brooks and his real-life wife, Anne Bancroft. Mel Brooks is Jewish. Mel Brooks descends from Ashkenazi Jews from Gdansk, Poland. He knew some Polish growing up. Anne Bancroft is not Jewish, not Polish, and thus had to memorize this entire number in Polish before shooting began. The language is enunciated more than it would be by native speakers and... Some Polish first language speakers have told me that this Polish first is not very good, and secondly, not very comical. But I'm willing to forgive them just a little bit. Keep in mind, of course, that it is Mrs. Robinson there on the right. Their relationship is spelled out in this number. They're both hung up on themselves, her for being beautiful and him for being a great actor in a place where there is probably a vacuum of even mediocre actors. This is the trope that will last throughout the film and will be the source of many jokes. But as we see, there are better actors backstage and in the production itself. Brooks is a first-rate comedian, and if you look at his work, which is art, and I will fight that battle forever, he loves to do two things at the same time. So here you have the Polish gag, which amuses you because you don't understand a single word that they're saying, and at the same time, what they're singing, that's funny. Who knew that sweet Georgie Brown would be such a hit in pre-war Poland? To add to this is the old prejudice that still exists today that Poles are stupid. Why are they stupid? Well, when Poles came to America, they didn't speak French or Italian or German or Russian. They spoke this other language that no one could understand, and even further, it was hard to find an interpreter for. So unlike all those other groups, which of course suffer discrimination because of their language, the Poles were singled out because among the other immigrants, they were the worst at being understood. In reality, this is no worse than any other immigrant situation, but for the Poles, the stigma, the stigma of being stupid, is a black mark they have to live with. They have to conquer. And one of the reasons why I want to watch this film and dissect it with you, instead of the original To Be or Not To Be from 1942, is because of this issue. Brooks takes on this issue from the very beginning of the movie, and he's going to show us, the audience, how Poles are typecast, how they are stereotyped, how they are pigeonholed, and discriminate against. And he's going to show you how absolutely absurd it is to do that, especially to Poles, by showing how smart they are. And he'll show you how horribly absurd it is to be someone who discriminates, and how that conveys to this day how discrimination is still going on, and how we can't be complacent about it. And we'll get to all of that and a whole lot more after we laugh our ass off in this scene. 
The man shouting in the background is Ronnie Graham. He helped write the remake. The joke here is the man that's holding the sign looks a lot like Kilroy from The War, and the poster has Brooks in this obnoxious pose with Anna Brodsky's name in brackets. The underlying joke is that Anne Bancroft is actually much more famous than her husband, Mel Brooks, has nominations and Oscars and all the rest of it, and is probably most well known for her sultry and some say slutty representation of Mrs. Robinson in The Graduate. I think every class in every film school in America watches The Graduate. No one watches a single Mel Brooks film. And Brooks is aware of this, and he's poking fun at himself, which is to say that he's not hung up on his wife's fame. He's very proud of her and has no problem being Mrs. Robinson's husband. Brooks ends this shot on a pose that looks as if it's one of his posters from the beginning of the film. And if you watch the film, he has this remarkable poster shot like these everywhere. Here it is. And George Winner is seated in that, and I missed him. He was holding up a, a razor and a kind of an imitation of a Sieg Heil, as if to say the Germans will slit our throats. And of course, he's right. One of the biggest differences between the two versions, the 1942 version and this one, is the opening sequence. Hitler was a very divisive figure in 1942. Remember that when the film was first shot, the country was not yet at war. They shot it in the fall of 1941, and America did not enter the war until December 1941. So it premieres in early 1942, just months after America entered the war. So to see Hitler, who was still alive, walk down the street of Warsaw openly was a little kooky, a little funny when they shot it, but by the time the film opened, it turned into a bizarre display. Before Pearl Harbor, Hitler had a lot of sympathy in America, but after Pearl Harbor, not so much, and as they, the dying started even less. So that's not so divisive today. If you did that in this sequel, it, it wouldn't pan out. If someone dressed like Hitler and walked down the streets of Warsaw, New York, or Berlin, I'm, I'm sure he'd be beaten to death. I, I say that, but there is a film that kind of runs that way. It's called... on Netflix. Look who's here. Check that out. No one would save him, I'm thinking. And that's why that scene wasn't used for this remake. A lot of people, I should say a lot of critics, have complained about the naughty Nazi sketch. They say that it's in bad taste. They say that it's too close to springtime for Hitler from the producers. Or Brooks is trying to cash in on that. And I say that's all rubbish. This is effectively a cabaret. And for those of you who have not seen the movie Cabaret or The Night Porter, a highly attacked but underrated film, the Cabaret was a, a dinner theater that was popular before the war that did parody but was banned by the Nazis because it was satire. Mostly, as the Nazis became more and more famous and powerful, they became more and more lampooned as imbeciles. Cabarets had songs about how the Nazis hated Jews and blamed them for everything. And isn't this just absurd and... That's what the sketch is here. He's lampooning them. He's showing them what an idiot Hitler is. And just like the Nazis closed down the cabarets because they could not take criticism, here the fear of upsetting the Nazis will do the same. Hitler is not a funny person, despite being described by some as having a sense of humor, particularly Albert Speer. And Hitler would have shot anyone who actually did something like this. And Brooks goes the extra mile in having the black shirts here, the SS. 
If there was anyone who didn't have a sense of humor, it was the SS. In the shot coming up here, the goose-stepping is important. Goose-stepping was lampooned by pretty much everyone, and still is. Mussolini was known for making fun of how the Nazis goose-stepped. Now pretty much the only ones who do it are the Russians and the North Koreans. And there's something very totalitarian about goose-stepping, which is why the curtain comes down on them. Soundheim's name here is obviously a drop to the famous songwriter. He wrote great musicals and great music. And looking at this set here, Brooks is setting you up for later for when you'll see the theater turned into a set for Selecki's visit. So some prep work is being done there. I prefer this film to the original film for a lot of reasons. We'll get into some of them. Color is one. Mel Brooks is another. Style of comedy, yet another one. I've covered comedies before, and I'll stand on that soapbox for one more time when I express my frustration that critics and, more importantly, people who vote for award ceremonies don't like comedies. I find this strange that comedies are dismissed like this because I would imagine that they are much harder to do than tragedy. I want to quote from Peter Barnes here, who wrote a BFI book on To Be or Not To Be from the British Film Institute. He says, quote, Comic talent is seldom given as much weight as the merely worthy. This is particularly true of America, where playing or writing about a one-eyed gay hunchback drug addict is a shoe-in for an Oscar. This is why comics compensate for their low self-esteem by embarking on totally non-humorous projects to prove their worth, unquote. That's very true. It's very correct. And you can see that in the career of Robin Williams, who successfully turned his career from all laugh to all cry. And in the career of Jim Carrey, who's trying so hard not to be a comic, it's just sad. Another setup here, a popular trope, the clown car. And the setup is that you'll see this much later in the finale, and you'll see the same car and much the same people on the same set, and it'll all be redone at the same camera angle for a theater full of mass murderers. Very clever stuff. So this is all just establishing what's to come later, which is done very well in this movie. Highlights from Hamlet, Naughty Nazis, The Clown Car. All of it will be repeated in one form or another later. The Naughty Nazis will be repeated when Bronski goes to the Gestapo and sees they're much more idiotic than he could ever portray them to be. James Hacke plays Sasha here on Abronsky's hairdresser. And like almost everything else in the movie, there's a duality going on. Sasha is flamboyantly gay and in a very stereotypical role, the gay hairdresser. And as such, he's supposed to bring comic relief as this role typically does. In fact, if you want to read a fantastic book on the history of gays in Hollywood, you ought to read The Celluloid Closet by Vito Russo. A very exhaustive study that looks at roles like these and what do they mean for film and for gays and for Hollywood. Don't dismiss them. They're very important. And since we're on the topic, we can see this dual role, the comic relief and then the target of sympathy. Sasha is just as much a target for the Nazis as the gypsies are and the Jews because he's gay. And this film, unlike a lot of others, does not ignore this. The Nazis are the ones who came up with the idea of the pink triangle so they could spot a fag from across the street. And the only thing worse than a fag was a lesbian. Because a guy who likes dick, Nazis could understand that. They were loaded with homosexuals. But lesbians, no, they couldn't understand that at all. 
Ernst Röhm, who was for a while the second most powerful man in the Nazi party, was gay. And as he acquired more and more power, he was more and more flamboyant about it. He was caught in bed with his lover when Hitler arrested him in the Night of the Long Knives in 1935 when Hitler purged the SS. So gay men were part of the Nazi movement until they were seen as subversive because they didn't fall into this SS ideal that Hitler and Himmler dreamed up and propagated about Germany, the fatherland, not the motherland, mind you, being this place that venerated mothers and gave them medals for how many children they had. And lesbians refused to have children, so they went to the camps immediately. It should come as no surprise that fascism is a male-dominated ideology and is very misogynistic, led by a man who had only one testicle. Check out a book called Male Fantasies by Klaus Thulewit. It covers that very well. Some of the other directors who do this type of thing, this two things at one time, are the Zucker Brothers. A contemporary film to look at would be Airplane, one of the greatest comedies ever made. They also made the Naked Gun movies, and they also use a background-foreground gag that Brooks uses in this film. You'll see Frank Drebin have a serious conversation with somebody at a restaurant, and it'll be completely boring and usually related to the plot. A waiter will walk up and serve drinks, and he'll turn around, and you'll see his butt. And he's not wearing any pants. And it'll be unexpected, and you'll laugh your ass off, no pun intended. Brooks does stuff like that here, and I'll try to point one out as we go along. The duality itself is in the title, to be or not to be, and Brooks himself conveys this on stage on the stage while his wife is off the stage. He's being loyal as she's flirting with this young pilot, Tim Matheson. And incidentally, if you haven't watched Up the Creek with Tim Matheson, you're missing out on life. And Anna is playing a double game here. She's just in it for the attention. She actually has no intention of being with this guy. Almost every character in the film has duality except for Matheson and Hawkins' character. They are who they are. We'll go back and forth between Bronsky and Bronsky's wife, not to create tension, but to show you alternate versions of their marriage. They both love to be loved, and they love to be loved in their own way. Bronsky, for instance, loves to put his name on large posters, and his wife really doesn't mind if her name is smaller in the bottom of the poster, but she draws the line at brackets. At the same time, Bronsky would never take a lover because part of being loved in his mind is the adoration his wife gives him. But she, however, would take a lover because her love needs are private-based and his love needs are professional-based. So they go back and forth. And in a very real sense, this balances the film among its true stars, Brooks and Bancroft. How Sasha and the lieutenant interact here is pretty interesting, given that they are the most honest people in the movie. Incidentally, the German law that made homosexuality a crime was passed during the Weimar years under what they called Paragraph 175. The law actually wasn't repealed until 1994. It lumped homosexuality in with bestiality, prostitution, and underage sexual abuse. About 140,000 men were convicted under the law, which the Nazis used to put thousands in concentration camps and kill them en masse. 
the law would last past the war, and conviction would actually peak in the 1950s and early 1960s. There's a great film about it called Paragraph 175, a documentary, and I urge you all to see it. The Nazis were just fucking determined to kill anything that didn't look like them, even if they looked exactly like them and were just fucking each other. And I'm convinced there was something else going on there, something latent. Like if you look at videos of Himmler, I'm just convinced he was a closet case and couldn't stand it. I think he was trying to kill every gay man he saw because he was trying to wipe away that from his own mind, you know? Asshole. Anyway, back to duality. This duality will come into play later when Brooks has to play Seletsky twice play Earhart twice, and then play Hitler twice. And to emphasize the double game you have to play in order to survive in Nazi-occupied Europe. Except for the Hitler doppelganger, all of this was not from Brooks or the screenwriter, but from Edwin Justice Mayer, who was Lubitsch's screenwriter on the original film. Mel Brooks here is the character Jack Benny plays in the original name of the character they eliminated, Bronsky. We'll get into that a little bit later. Benny played up his whole great, great actor phenomenon, and Brooks played into that, quote, he's world famous in Poland, unquote, which is an original line updated for 1983 that that falls into the Hamlet scene here as Hamlet. He's supposed to be one of the most difficult roles to play. Bronsky plays him, so therefore Bronsky must be one of the greatest actors to ever live. And you can see the flaw there. The village idiot could be the best actor if he stayed in the village and no other actor came to perform, and that's probably why the Bronskis own their own theater. I always thought this shot was hysterical. Excuse me, pardon me, excuse me, pardon me. Even if I didn't outright laugh at it, and this movie is filled with stuff like this. It's really funny even if you're not clutching your gut. And he starts screaming, Whether tis known, outrageous fortune! Shakespeare's really coming alive for Bronski because he simply cannot fucking believe this guy. This same guy is walking out on him. Not just during a performance, but the son of a bitch waits until Hamlet's soliloquy to walk out on him. And to Bronski, this is the worst insult, and it's why his wife chose it. He's in love with himself, and he'll take his time, and he'll do it upright like any obsessed actor, which I think is all of them. So let's take a step back a minute and talk about the naughty Nazis and stick comedy. Slapstick is most cunningly portrayed in the naughty Nazi sketch. And this is perhaps the height of what Brooks is trying to say in differentiating himself from Lubitsch. Lubitsch would never do something like this because he was not a slapstick type of guy. Slapstick back in the forties was old vaudeville stuff. Laurel and Hardy type stuff, W.C. Fields. So no, that wouldn't work in a time or place, but it would in 1984. Making a comedy about the Second World War has to be hard, especially it involves Poles or Polish Jews like this does. So doing the normal comedy is going to be tough. There are people who really think that you can't make lighthearted films about the war or especially about the Jews or their circumstances and especially the Holocaust. Life is Beautiful, which won Best Foreign Film at the Academy Awards, was roundly criticized because of this view. Brooks is aware of this, and so he tries to remove the seriousness 
even further away from criticism, first by doing a remake so that it is already established, and second by making it a slapstick, which is decidedly not what Lubitsch did. But it makes the premise more absurd and safer for a comedy. And that's pretty smart. This film is a remake, and it honors the Ernst Lubitsch film. I don't want to talk about that film too much, but as this is a a remake, I have to draw some things from it, because in many ways, Brooks made a film that not just honors what that film did, but he's done it in a way that casts very modern themes into a situation, a plot, a movie, that you would think would be so much in one time and one place that it would be completely dated. So let's go through some of those things. And of course, we're going to have to start with the war. And this is timely because in this scene, the war starts and Bronski is hysterical here when he says it's horrible too, much worse than a fan walking out of, you know. You can see the war in every scene in this film. The wardrobe, the haircuts, it all screams 1939, September 1939 to be exact. And that's when Germany invaded Poland. And I'm not going to get into deep reasons as to why the war started, but a quick run through is in order since the film hinges on this. My son loves this film, and he falls into stitches every time Lutpinski comes down into the shelter, which is going to happen in a minute, and does the Star of David on his chest after the Catholic woman, who I think is Mel Brooks' real mom, crosses herself with the cross. And this scene is absolutely frightening to think about. I mean, how can people live like this? And what did the Poles do to deserve it? So here's the cross, and here's Lupinski doing the Star of David. And what did the Poles do to deserve it? Absolutely nothing. This shot looks like a painting that's coming up here. And of course, they're all already in their uniforms. The camera pans around, but it's stationary in the theater. Here, look at this. This looks like a any 17th or 18th century painting by an old Dutch grandmaster. And Brooks hits the nail on the head when he slaps the globe and he says, Poland, the doormat of Europe. The Poles are sick of being pushed around. And you're going to see a series of newsreel shots here that if you watch just a little bit of history on TV, you'll recognize from the war. The danger of using these very standard images is that you pull the viewer out of the color world that you were just in. But there's no better economical way to show what happened to the entire country. Nowadays, there would be a lot of CGI shots indicating what tanks and planes did, but they couldn't do back do that back then. Hundreds of films did this, and it is a tired tool of the trade. To balance it, you have to have this transition. In this shot, where at first, you think you're watching another piece of newsreel, but you're not. It's real, and gradually everything fades into color, and that's to bring you back into the reality of the Bronski Theater. That this is a story, yes, but these things really did happen. Poland was destroyed. Poland was a medieval kingdom that actually practiced an advanced form of democracy for a while. It was such a dangerous adversary to Germany and Russia that it was conquered and partitioned three times. The first partition was in 1772, the second was in 1790, and the third one was in 1795. In 1815, Poland was carved up again after the Congress of Vienna, which sought to redraw the lines of Europe after the age of Napoleon. 
Later in 1832, both Russia and the Austro-Hungarian Empire sliced off pieces of Poland to themselves. So Poland was used to being split up. After the First World War, the area between Russia and Germany was considered to be an area that invited war and a strong country to hold that land and separate those two hostile countries was thought to be a solution. The only problem with this plan was Germany and Russia hated Poland just as much as they hated each other. So they had no problems carving it up again, which would be the sixth time in under two centuries. Mel Ferrer, ladies and gentlemen. Sorry, that's Jose Ferrer. Mel Ferrer was Audrey Hepburn's husband. This is Miguel Ferrer's father. Miguel Ferrer, unfortunately, just passed away, I think, last month. This did happen. Polish pilots did fly to Britain and fight in the RAF. Polish troops made it out, and they fought in Europe in other theaters of war, Italy being one of them, particularly along the line of Monte Cassino. The biggest problem for Poland was the same problem the Germans had with everything, which was the Treaty of Versailles. The treaty ended the First World War and became basically a shopping list of everything that was wrong in the world. And Hitler used it as a checklist for his political ambitions. Bitching about Versailles got them into power, and destroying Versailles bit by bit over the years not just made him more popular at home, but it made him more powerful on the world stage. It worked so well, in fact, that he started to think no one was going to stop him. When he ordered the invasion of Poland, he didn't think the Brits and the French would go to war over it because they had already given him so much in the appeasement process. Why would they stop there? The main stink in Versailles for Poland was that a huge chunk of it, about a third actually, was actually a part of East Prussia, which was a, a state in Germany. There was no denying this. This was done to give Poland as much land as possible to separate her powers. It wound up being completely stupid, and to make matters worse, Poland didn't have a port on the Baltic, so Versailles gave them one, and this was the German city of Danzig, which is nowhere near Poland, and it had a huge majority German population. Not only was Danzig carved off and given to Poland, but this huge swath of land that attached Danzig to Poland was also given to them, and this physically separated East Prussia from Germany. And there was a port in East Prussia called Konigsberg that would have been more geographically kosher, if I could use that word. But that city, more so than Danzig, was seen as historically German, so they decided against it. And that's why Danzig was chosen. A part of East Prussia was also already carved off near Konigsberg and given to Lithuania, so carving off more in that area was pretty much a no-go. This next scene in MI5 is a good scene, but it's problematic. One problem I have with this version of the film is that it's not in the original, and it's a sudden realization that Seletsky is a Nazi spy. If you watch carefully, you'll see a bit of a story hole. Seletsky takes down the information about the Polish underground, then he trips up by telling Lieutenant Sabinski that he's never heard of Anna Bronski. Big mistake. Sabinski reports this to British intelligence, who at first act very nonchalant about it before they freak out about the contact information. In this scene, which is not a bad scene, no one cast member uh, pontificates whether or not Seletsky is a spy. They just take it for granted. No one says, well, we knew he was a spy. And no one says, well, if he doesn't know Anna Bronski, he must be a spy. Or the ultimate doppelganger, 
Well, he's a spy working for us, but if he's collecting information, he must be a double agent. A simple line from one of the so-called intelligence agents would have solved all of that and filled the plot hole, but they don't. And it's annoying because it takes the audience for granted. That scene is important. It's like the scene in Indiana Jones where Harrison Ford explains the staff of Ra to the FBI. And that scene is possibly one of the greatest cinema history, not because it's in Raiders of the Lost Ark, but because it does not treat its audience like idiots or savant. And I know that this is a Mel Brooks film, and I know that it's a comedy, but don't take things like that lightly. It can really mean the difference between Caddyshack, which everyone quotes now, to a piece of shit Ben Stiller starred in 20 years ago, which nobody remembers. Certainly not me. So Hitler wanted this land in Poland back, and many people thought, yeah, it should go back. But if Hitler hadn't already been such an ass with how he lied and carved up Czechoslovakia, he probably would have gotten it. The Allies, if you could call them that, they'd been over backwards for Hitler to give him what he wanted every time. And every time he'd raise the stakes and he'd get that too. So he didn't believe that the Allies were at their end. The difference was that after accepting the deal in Czechoslovakia, he broke it, and the Allies just couldn't take it. It was highly embarrassing of them. And I don't know why they were surprised. He never kept a fucking promise in his life, well, except to the Jews. So you see, carving up this in the music act that Bronsky gives in the theater for the naughty Nazis is very irrelevant. You know, a little slice of turkey, a little drop of grease. I think that was Max Brooks there little kid, the future author of World War Z. The scene when Bronski decides to hide a few Jews in his basement here, you have to understand the duality of this moment. It's funny because unknowingly to him, he's letting in a whole family of not just one person. But in reality, Bronski would have been shot for this. His wife would have been shot. Every member of the theater would have been shot or sent to a concentration camp. So don't think for a minute that this is a fly-by-night scene. This is a scene that's not in the 1942 film. Brooks added it for a very specific reason. And here Bronski's forced to leave his house, as all Poles would have to do the minute the Nazis wanted their home. The Nazis knew who was rich and who had what, and they just took whatever they wanted and never paid for it. In fact, they didn't even pay for the trains that took the Jews to die in the gas chambers. They made the Jews pay for their ticket. To this day, there are hundreds of thousands of apartments all over Europe that now belong to families who were handed these places or took them themselves or bought them from someone who took them from a Jewish family. We skipped over that radio shot that was in the basement where they're all listening to the update about the war breaking out. It's superfluous to say that there was no TV back then, but the domination of the radio was something to wonder. The radio gave you everything, even in Poland. And you could see that in those scenes, in the scenes the Poles discuss amongst themselves what this means for Poland, just like any country anywhere. They've been a country for 20 years. They've managed to come quite far. Poland was a very cogent country by 1939, very refined, very culturally rich. Vaudeville was especially very big there. And that's why we see that in this film in certain elements. You see it in a theater that supposedly has fine drama plays. And of course, Brooks knows all of this. This is another funny bit here where the Bronskis see just how poor Sasha is, and they act surprise. But surely Sasha can earn a little more. The other different thing that Brooks is doing is another unspoken genius of the film. 
And the original, the actor who owns the theater is named Joseph Tura and is played by Jack Benny. His wife is Maria Tura and she is played by Carol Lombard. The theater they run together is called the Tura Theater. Tura could be used because it is a decidedly non-Jewish name. The actor in the original who dresses up as Hitler, both on stage and off stage, is called Bronsky, who is played by the silent screen legend Tom Dugan. So it's Dugan who gets into all of these antics and in many cases bumbles his way through both the Turas and the Nazis. This has a certain flair, which is good, but what Brooks does is even more amazing. I saw Tim Matheson on Netflix. He's in the last season of Burn Notice. Check that one out. The Bronski character is eliminated from the first film, but the Turas become the Bronskis. So there's no back and forth with an extra cast member. Instead, it's all Bronski, or I should say that it's all Brooks. I believe this is Carl Reiner's wife. Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks go back forever. So Brooks has played Hitler on stage, offending the authorities, and later plays Hitler in private. And inherently, this is insanely more funny than what Dugan did with his role. So we don't have to get invested into another character that's hanging around. The cast is kept small, or I should say as small as possible, with George Gaines and George Wiener being the brilliant actors that they are. To catch up on the Poland invasion, I'll just say that it was all bullshit. The Nazis put together a sham invasion with a sham taking over of a German radio station and sham broadcasts from that station. They found out after the war it was all bullshit. It was all made up. None of it ever took place. The Nazis used Polish uniforms and all that mess. It was like the Gulf of Tonkin bullshit. Times 10. The key to the entire situation is a double cross, a duality that existed with the Nazis and the communists. Hitler signed a treaty with his sworn enemy, Joseph Stalin, the dictator of the Soviet Union. And this treaty was a non-aggression pact, meaning the two countries promised not to go to war against each other for at least 10 years, and Stalin bought it. And this has been a great thing to figure out by historians. Hitler just broke his promise to the Allies not to invade Czechoslovakia, and yet Stalin believes him when he signs this treaty not to invade the Soviet Union. Stalin signs it because of this secret agreement, which is another dirty secret in the history of Poland. Look at this amazing set design. I hope you're watching this with a regular DVD and not a Blu-ray. One of the few things I dislike about Blu-ray is the transfer process from film. This film and others from the same time period, like A Christmas Story, for instance, have not transferred well. Not at all. It's like watching a fucking fourth grade schoolhouse play. You can see all the imperfections of the set that film stock hides. And that does not please me at all. You know, I'm interested in having Fantasyland here. The treaty between Hitler and Stalin had secret agreements to carve up Poland between the two of them. So Hitler would invade Western Poland. And recapture German lands prior to the Treaty of Versailles. And Stalin got the other eastern half. 
He waited a few weeks to invade to see if the Germans really intended to stop at the line they agreed to, but they invaded nonetheless. And the Russians took the other half of Poland. They invaded, and they took the Polish army from behind and destroyed it almost as fast as Hitler destroyed the Polish forces in western Poland. And after this was all done, Stalin had the entire leadership of the Polish armed forces shot in the head and buried in a mass grave in a forest called Katyn. And no one wants to talk about this war crime. They don't want to talk about how the Soviet Union was just as guilty as the Nazis in dividing Poland. They don't want to talk about how they stole the other half of Poland and murdered their leadership in cold blood. And after the war was over, what did anybody do about it? Nothing. So Germany invaded Poland on September 1st, 1939. Some say it was because it's a month after August, which is when the First World War started. And the Allies did nothing. And I went through all of that to emphasize a point, which is the empathy for the Poles, which is huge in the world. The democracies really wanted to stay out of this conflict, even Britain and France, who guaranteed Poland support. They wanted to stay out of the war, but they, they got in and they got hurt. And the Americans stayed out of it for two whole years, and they watched Poland get carved up. And you didn't have to be anti-German to, to be sympathetic to the Poles. You just had to have a heart. And that heart was in the Ernst Lubitsch film. And as we see here in Mel Brooks's film, in doing this in 1983, Brooks is flashing a spotlight on several issues. The war, the Holocaust, the treatment of Poles. And this is important specifically because Poland was so ignored, so forgotten, so destroyed. And nobody wants to talk about it. Everybody wants to forget it. Well, Mel Brooks doesn't want to forget it. He actually sells in frustration, remember, when he hits the globe. Poland, the doormat of Europe. So there is real empathy here. And we'll get to why this is important in 1983 a little bit later. Anna Bronsky's visit to Professor Seletsky at the Hotel Europa sets off a chain of events between the hotel, the theater, and Gestapo headquarters for the next hour. It becomes rather frantic as everyone now has to remember that each one is doubling for something else, which is another duality. The hotel is a hotel, but only for Nazis and really is the political heart of occupied Warsaw, or occupied Poland. You can't just enter and leave the hotel, so it's like a prison. A political prison, not a hotel. Gestapo headquarters is not just Gestapo headquarters, it's really the Bronski's old residence. So they've taken over the hotel, they've taken over the Bronski mansion, and they might as well have taken over the theater. The theater will first mask as the Gestapo, and then later, I'm sure it was either taken over completely by the Nazis to find out what was going on there or burnt to the fucking ground. And of course, remember that none of the Poles will ever go back. Certainly not the Jews and none of the Gentiles. Why would they go back to Poland and after 1945, after the war has destroyed everything and under a government that's just as oppressive as the Nazis? So each one of these sets doubles as something different. And at least one person has to double in their personality in order to survive. So here, Anna Bronsky, you could say, is not a necessarily loyal wife to her husband, but she's a 100% Polish patriot. And here she has to turn up the charm in order to get out of this room alive, so to speak. She's in trouble because she knows the pilot that Seleski has met. So she plays a double game here, and this double game will continue by all the participants except the Nazis in uniform, because there is no double game with Nazis. They're just as evil as they look.
Jose Ferrer here is just amazing. He was one of those classic Hollywood actors, and he plays his role to a T, and he's so refined. He reminds me of the old school actors like Cary Grant or Humphrey Bogart. And Brooks is also going for something much different here, even as she looks in the mirror. Duality, right? He's not going for sublime sarcasm like Lubitsch. He's going for a more slapstick sarcasm. And that becomes more apparent in scenes with Concentration Camp Earhart as he slips off his desk three times, which we'll see in a little bit. It's the same scene as the first film, but things like that really change the purpose of what Brooks is doing as opposed to what Lubitsch was trying to do. These are very careful subtleties. The Seletsky in the first film was just pure concentrated evil. But Ferrer here plays the same character with a little more slimy, slightly campy, but in a creepy way, like that uncle that touched you in the closet when you were eight kind of thing. And Bancroft has to do the same. She's got to play the same character, just as shallow, but slightly amused at what Seletsky's doing. It's the same tightrope as Carol Lombard in the first film. It's just carried out in a little bit differently. It's these little differences that make the film. It's not true to say that this film was completely panned when it came out, but it is almost completely forgotten. And film analysts don't particularly like it. There's many reasons for this. The typical ones are very stark. It's a remake. No critic likes those. It's a remake of a Lubitsch film. No one can do a Lubitsch film like Lubitsch. How dare you? You're not doing it right. And one of the other reasons why it's hated is Brooks was a practical comedian. If you've never seen the original, then I guess you're kind of left out of it. But Lubitsch was a very dark-humored person, and he had a sardonic wit and a satirical comment that he wanted to show you. And he wanted to convey just how absolutely horrible these Nazis were. People hated the original To Be or Not To Be at the time because they misinterpreted because of these dark themes. And they thought that Lubitsch was making light of the Nazis, which means that he was making light of concentration camps and making light of the Gestapo and all of that. And they really thought that it was in bad taste, extreme bad taste. And they didn't see it as this masterful commentary on fascism. The Nazis were portrayed like clowns, and they mistook that to be literal. So after the war, as we study these personalities like Himmler and Eichmann and their stooges, we find out that they're not too far from the truth. They're a bunch of fucking clowns. They're just clowns with the power of life and death, and that is really scary. So perhaps the meaning in what Lubitsch was trying to do was missed a little bit. In fact, I know it was. Now, this is a scene that really fleshes out something that was kind of skipped over in the first film, but Brooks takes it head on. This is so funny how he scrapes Tim Matheson's beard here and rubs his face. and You never would really pull that off in, in a straight homoerotic moment like this in the 30s or 40s because of the Hayes Code. Maybe in a slapstick film like The Three Stooges or whatever, but not really this direct where they're cuddling. And that's the only place that you would pull something like this off. It's hokey, and it's a time filler and all of that, but it's also funny. And if you don't think that's funny, then this isn't the movie for you. And remember, again, a lot of this stuff is meant to be very funny, and you think it's funny every time, but it's not necessarily something that you're holding your gut for. Brooks knew that he could not repeat this, this history to do what Lubitsch did to a T. He was aware of his limits, both as a producer and an actor, so he knew that he couldn't do the subtle type of 
sardonic wit that Lubitsch was doing. He couldn't repeat Lubitsch's master screenplay. And of course, he didn't even try. I mean, he did not have Carl Lombard and Jack Benny to pull it off. He did, however, have a take that was original. There's no way that he could re repeat that sarcastic wit of Lubitsch. This is true, but he could take it the other way to slapstick mania. And yes, he didn't have Carol Lombard, but he did have Anne Bancroft, and he pulls off something masterful there. Look at Bancroft here. She's amazing. There's all three of these. It's hard to act with three people. They take up all the oxygen in the room. So you can see this here is a kind of overacting on the part of Brooks and Matheson. Overemphasization. It's for comedy, of course, and you can look at Jim Carrey and see the far end of that spectrum. There's this feeling that comedy is a low form of art, but if you look at acting in general, what is it? Kevin Smith once said in one of his podcasts on filmmaking, I'm sorry, I forget which one, and I'm sorry for those of you who are Kevin Smith haters, but he's got some very relevant points. He said, as an actor, you have the material, then you get to make a choice. And once you make that choice, you have to fulfill that choice through your performance. If you look at the arc of comedic acting in a medium and where film one of the first films ever made, right? They were these novelty films and the influence of vaudeville, and you see this overemphasis on performance. In the 1930s, they were figuring out sound and how to use sound, and this became really pronounced because you had to make yourself heard in order to be recorded on set. And this snowballed into a kind of wooden acting that you see in films like His Girl Friday, and It Happened One Night, and then not too much later, you see Lubitsch's To Be or Not To Be which is a year after Citizen Kane, another one to go by here. And then they've got it down. Dramatic acting, comedic acting. And not everyone is going to be deadpan like Bob Hope was and Johnny Carson would be. There is going to be overemphasis in order to nail home the joke. And one of the reasons why I hate Woody Allen and his films is that he's trying to get away from this in all of his films, other than the whole pedophilia thing, which... I'm not going to talk about it. But he tries to make all of his main characters into him, to act like him, to act like the small Jewish kid from New York. You look at Kenneth Branagh in Celebrity, and I just hate that role. And Edward Norton did it too in another film, which I believe was a musical, and there seems to be a pullback from the outrageous overemphasis like Brooks is doing here, and it goes into this wimpy, whining role that for some reason tends to get people a lot of awards. And it's great for one-liners, but what about the story? People who think Anne Bancroft isn't funny haven't seen this movie. You can see how this arc in Brooks's career kind of gets away from him. Blazing Saddles is almost shot not like a comedy. There's very little overemphasis, even though it has outrageous scenes in it that are completely off-key. And Young Frankenstein, it's not shot like a comedy at all. It's shot like a classic James Whale 30s horror film. It's only the physicality of the cast and their overemphasis that makes it a comedy. This film is shot like a soft TV miniseries melodrama about the war. It might as well be War and Remembrance or The Thornbirds or what was that great one that James Woods was in in the early 80s? I think it was a miniseries called The Holocaust. And what do you get from Brooks? Slapstick. 
And by the end of Brooks's film career, you see things totally go insane, completely off the map, even the remake of The Producers. So I see him getting farther and farther and farther off side. But if it works, it works, and it's definitely working here. Hal Hitler. George Winter is hysterical here. So you can see this in the dramatically different career between Brooks and Benny. And I read somewhere that it was a shame that most people today won't know who Jack Benny was. And it's the same as Mel Brooks. He's in the, his 80s now, and he's still buddies with Carl Reiner. The wives knew each other very well. And the old men, they still vetch around and all of that. And it'll be a decade or two more, and people will be watching Blazing Saddles and Spaceballs. But they'll, I think they're going to forget Mel Brooks. And that's just sad. Because I love Mel Brooks. My kid loves Mel Brooks. He's 12 and he thinks Brooks is hysterical. He loves this movie. And he drops lines like Spaceballs, The Flamethrower. But you know, the same is true of most of these types of actors. The only ones you remember are the ones who died when they were young. Jimmy Dean, Marilyn Monroe, John Lennon, Kurt Cobain. And yes, it's sad when the image stops moving. It's, it's like it, it goes on forever. It's a complete paradox. It'd be why... Marlena Dietrich wouldn't let herself be filmed after a certain age. And those who keep making images never get that kind of notoriety from their career. What if Carrie Fisher had died in 1988 when she was on every drug imaginable? It'd be Princess Leia and that's it. And what did she do after that? Much more. She'd rack it up, you know, postcards from the edge, wishful drinking, all the script doctoring. She saved movies with her famous wit and pen and she got millions for doing it when Harry met Sally one of her best films is another lost one the man with one red shoe with Tom Hanks and Jim Belushi when she's in the leopard bikini chasing after Tom Hanks in his apartment you know but that's not how we're going to remember her necessarily and I think she's fine with that There has to be some mental conditioning for a Jew, and there's tons of Jews in this shot, to put on a uniform, even if it is a costume, and grit his teeth to play a Nazi. Frank Sinatra, for instance, was a famous Nazi hater. He had nothing but gnashing the teeth for fascists. And as he was Italian, he really took it personally, and he put on uniforms like this in films, and you know he hated it. And I imagine most of this cast is Jewish, and they're wearing this uniform, and I'm sure they hate it, in between takes, where they're just lounging around with a swastika on their fucking arm. You know it's not lost on There's this famous story about Jack Benny's dad, who was in a retirement home. He went to go see the first To Be or Not To Be in 1942, and he left in the middle of it because he saw his son put on a Nazi uniform, and he was just disgusted. Eventually, he did go back, and he saw that it was his duty to fight them, to fight the Nazis. He's old and in a retirement home, and what can he do? Well, you can watch that film. And we can watch this one. So they call me Concentration Camp Arhar. We do the concentrating, and the Poles do the camping. I love that line not because it's a dig at the Poles, but, it, but because it's a dig at the Nazis. Look at Brooks's evil smile in that scene, and it's because he's trying to come off as this evil persona and that's what I'm trying to get at here. And it's also, remember the camps in 1940 and the concept of the camps when the film was first made, at least. They had a different connotation than what they had in 1945. And now, when the truth came out about what was going on in there. So 
you must understand not as a film goer but as a concerned human being that there was a difference between a concentration camp and a death camp. There were only four death camps. The concentration camps fed into them and the first film was written and shot before any of this went down. The true horror of what was to become of the Jews was not yet to happen and even the horror of what had already happened during the invasion of Poland the previous year not everyone really knew about that. They knew about the ghettos and the oppression of course but not the mass extermination by carbon monoxide poisoning or the firing squads. Paul Rubens, who is the actor most known for being Pee Wee Herman, to backtrack a little bit, his father was a fighter pilot in the Second World War, and he volunteered after the war to go fly fighter planes for Israel's War for Independence. He traveled to Italy, where he picked up a bot for surplus German Messerschmitt 109, a fighter plane used to suppress freedom all over Europe, and he flew that to Israel to help establish them as an independent nation, and it still had a fucking swastika on the tail. Imagine that. And so I suppose that as a Jew in this scene, you're fighting a good fight. You're fighting fascism by making this movie. You're pointing out the horrors and you're making fun of them, yes, but only because they're so dangerous. Hermann Goering was the laughing stock, but he was a fucking dangerous man. Himmler was a pig farmer. He was a mass murderer. Ribbentrop was a champagne salesman and deserved to hang. Hitler never had a job except when he was drafted to run messages in the army. He's a complete joke but he's a deadly joke. And that's what happens when you don't take the joke seriously. Everything is a joke until they're elected president and suddenly they're curtailing your civil rights. So all of that is wrapped up here where the performances are over the top and when Bronsky and Seletsky is in the Gestapo headquarters and his theater buddies come to save him and take him away. And he's running out of lines here because actors can't improv. See? Actors can't improv. He's run out of lines. What am I going to do? Bronsky Theater, Naughty Nazis, and the game is up. And the fact that the performances are over the top and no one notices, not the big, bad, evil Gestapo who knows all this and sees all this, ultra paranoid, the fact that they don't notice any of it, that's part of the joke. And now the joke is on Bronsky. And that's why some people think the first film and this remake which was made only because the first film had a change in how people looked at it over time. That's why some people think that this film and comedies like it are in bad taste. And I can see that. But I also clearly see what Brooks is doing here. He's fighting fascism in a fascist uniform, and there are fewer better things that you can do with your art. The same argument was made of the first film. The first film was a film about a Jewish show, a Jew, well, excuse me, this film is a film about a Jewish show, Jewish actors in Poland, which was, and some would still say, is one of the most anti-Semitic countries in Europe. But Polish complicitness is complicated, and we'll get into more of that as we go along, but Poland wasn't a pristine utopia for Jews before the war. But Poland did not ask to be invaded and did not ask for the Nazis to come in and kill all their Jews. And let's not forget about a third of their total population, which just disappeared. The hunter becomes the hunted. And as they're hunting for Seletsky, we're hunting for the morality of the move, movie. So Peter Barnes, the author again of To Be or Not To Be by the BFI, he makes a brilliant point in his book on the first film when he asks, how would America look at a film that was a farce about Pearl Harbor? Or let's just say September 11th. How would the UK look at a film like this on the fall of Hong Kong or Singapore? This is a valid point. And I think Brooks avoided this by using Jews to ennoble a comedy. 
It's a smart move, but someone might say it's a little bit manipulative and not so inventive as Lubitsch, and that's fine. And I don't think Brooks would argue that. So the film is slightly skewered. Not as badly as the first one was, and not for the same reasons, but it is skewered nonetheless. And enter the amazing, yes, Christopher Lloyd, fresh off the success of Taxi, still a couple of years away from immortality that is Doc Brown in Back to the Future, which I previously covered on the Super 70 podcast. And I think the film was skewered because it was different in tone, because it was not like the first, which had become so venerated in the intervening four decades. I hope that happens to this one, but it's been 30 years, so I don't think so. So there's a remarkable shift in tone from that film to this one, including the plot reel in the beginning where Sobinski goes to England and finds out about Seletsky and comes back. And in the first film that plays completely as a spy thriller, you forget that it's a black comedy. There's even pictures of Hitler being hung on the wall. It's dark. The street shots are sinister. It's a heavy contrast in style, and not just because it's in black and white. Even Seletsky's death, although it's much like the first one, which just happened, it's different in tone. And the Heil is attempted, but it's not pulled off. It's like he's impotent to Heil his Fuhrer when he dies. So I keep referring to Brooks here as the creator and the director. Of course, it's not true. Brooks did not create this film. It's based on Lubitsch and his fantastic screenwriter, Meyer. And then, of course, two screenwriters redid that one to make this one. Brooks did not direct this film. Alan Johnson directed this film. And his only other one was Solar Babies, another film that was on fascism and roller skating or something. But it had Jamie Gertz in it, and I remember that with Jason Patrick. But look at Johnson's resume, and you'll see that he worked as a choreographer. And he goes back with Brooks all the way to 1967, all the way to the producers. So for someone who knows blocking, this film is perfect. And he's the director here, and all of that's fair. It's his first film, but this is a Brooks film film, and Brooks owns Brooks film, and he is the central push in all of this. And so I guess we should spend a little time on him. Mel Brooks was born in 1929 in New York from Jewish-Polish immigrants from Danzig, or what is now Gdansk. This is important to keep in mind when the war broke out. He was 11... When it was finished, he was 17. In fact, he was drafted into the army and he was in an engineering battalion whose job it was to clear landmines. So although he was young, he remembers the horrors of the war and the Shoah. He met Carl Reiner in the 1950s when they both worked on TV. He moved to California and helped create Get Smart starring Don Adams before writing and directing the producers. And the rest is, I guess, history. And so this is the second scene in which a double is being used. First, Bronski was a fake Nazi in a fake Gestapo, and now he's a different fake Nazi in a real Nazi hotel, and next he'll be a fake Nazi in the real Gestapo. The pace is so frenetic here, it becomes laughable. He's impersonating everyone, so at the end, when he impersonates Hitler, it's not that far-fetched. He's played Earhart, he's played Seletsky, and he's played a spy playing Seletsky, so it's really not that big of a deal. You're almost expecting it. The beautiful Anne Bancroft was born in 1931 in the Bronx. She acted on Broadway with everyone you could imagine before hitting it big as Annie Sullivan in The Miracle Worker. 
This got her into Hollywood where she reached the top with her portrayal of Mrs. Robinson in The Graduate. Brooks is her second husband. They married in 1964. Brooks has said that she was just as much responsible for the return of the producers to Broadway and film and the stage play of Young Frankenstein. She unfortunately passed away of uterine cancer in 2004. This is a great setup. Bronski just went to the hotel to get his wife out, and he gets called to the Gestapo simply because he's there and he's dressed like Selecki and they think he's him. Then in the entry, he hears of these two poles being shot, and it's just by circumstance that he's going to use them to get out of the pickle of not turning over the real Selecki's list of Polish underground resistance members. Charles Durning, who plays the real Colonel Concentration Camp Earhart here, is one of my favorite character actors and a patriot beyond calling. He was born in New York in 1923 and he fought in the war. He crossed over to Normandy on D-Day and was wounded later that day by a German explosive, earning him a Purple Heart his first day in combat. He stayed in combat for the rest of the war. And he talked about fighting the Nazis. He said, quote, It's hard to describe what we all went through that day, but those of us who were there will understand. We were all frightened all the time. My sergeant said, Are you scared, son? And I said, Yes, I am. And he said, That's good. It's good to be scared. He said, We all are. This guy in the boat, he turned to me, and he threw up all over me. And I got seasick. He was scared. You're not thinking about anything. You're just thinking about you hope that shell that just went off isn't going to hit this boat. Even the guys who had seen a lot of action before, and this was my first time, they were just as ashen as I was, and I was frightened to death. I was the second man off my barge, and the first and third men got killed. The first guy, the ramp went down, the guy fell, and I tried to leap over him, and I stumbled and we both slipped into the water. We were supposed to be able to walk to shore, but they didn't bring us far enough, and I was in 60 feet of water with a 60-pound pack on, so I let all of it go. I came up and I didn't have a helmet, a rifle, nothing. I hit the beach and the guys pulled me in, who were already there. I'd lost everything. They said, you'll find plenty of them on the beach, rifles, helmets, that belong to nobody. Nobody knew where we were supposed to go. There was nobody in charge. You were on your own. All around me, people were being shot at. I saw bodies all over the place. But you didn't know if they were alive or dead. They were just lying there. We got behind this tank to protect ourselves. We're holding our own when they call us over to them. I asked the sergeant, You want me to go first or you go first? He said, You go first. I'll be right behind you. I heard an explosion and I turned around and his torso was there. His body was over here. Memorable words from a great man and great actor, Charles Durning. Concentration Camp Air. That's the first joke in the scene, the pickle being the second great joke. Brooks and Durning going over the pickle joke reminds me of the skit on Saturday Night Live they did probably 20 years ago. Colin Quinn was in it, and I swear it was lifted right out of the scene. Quinn is standing in the back of the Nuremberg rally with a fellow Nazi, and they're talking very cautiously about 
Hitler sounds a little this and sounds a little that, like he's upset when Hitler's in the middle of this pot boiler speech. And what they're alluding to is that Hitler is fucking crazy and they all know it and they just can't say anything. And it's really funny in the ending when this other SS guy starts looming around and they want to carry on the conversation, but they obviously have to tone it down. So Quinn says something to the effect of, well, it sounds like the Fuhrer has a cold. And the SS guy freaks out and has them all arrested and sent off to some concentration camp, I'm sure. Camp with poles. Rim shot, please. Heil Hitler! It's the only way you can turn Heil Hitler into a joke. And that is lampooned consistently in this film. And here comes that line, the one we've all been waiting for, the one everyone is so uptight about, that bottles this whole movie. There was no way Brooks was going to leave it out. Heard of Bronsky? Yes. Well, what he did to Hamlet, we are doing to Poland. Lubitsch's wife asked him to take that out. There's no way Brooks would ever do that. Look at the expression on his face. It changes. So Bronsky is so pissed. He brings up the pickle again. See? So Durning as Earhart is so good, he's right on target, and he's such an ass, such a fanatical Nazi. It makes you think that if he wasn't such a yes-man, he might even think that Hitler isn't fascist enough. You know, it's like what I've read about the SS being amazed at how fast the Hungarians and the Romanians were killing their Jews off. It was so fast and so ruthless that even the Nazis were thinking, holy shit, they better slow down and pace themselves. That's Earhart, a true piece of shit, played by a brilliant actor that used to kill pieces of shit like that for a living. And I don't believe in God, but if you're there, please take care of that man. And this shot may be the best of Mel Brooks's career. That was my greatest performance ever, and nobody saw it. Watch a master at work, folks. Look at how serene he is. We saw it, Mel. And we loved you for it. This scene in which we sympathize from Sasha being on the run from the Gestapo as if he's a threat. Sasha, a threat? Jesus. How in the hell is that man a threat to the big German occupation machine? It's just sick. And I think this makes up for another scene that rubs people the wrong way in another movie, and it's the stand-up philosopher scene in Brooks' hysterically funny The History of the World Part 1, in which he plays Caesar's Palace, and the court jester is gay and flamboyant, much like Sasha, and Brooks is just cracking up the entire house, and the, the jester is cracking up, and Brooks turns to the camera and thumbs over to the jester, and he says the little fag gets it, and it's one of the best lines of the film, and it shows how intolerant people are in general, not just then, but of all time which is kind of the point of Mel Brooks' career, really, intolerance, blazing saddles to be or not to be, even high anxiety for the mentally ill, history of the world, which is the history of intolerance. And some people just can't get over that line. I've seen different versions of the film of when that line is cut out, but they leave in all this other stuff, which I think is so much worse in terms of content. And here the joke is that while he's talking about how much he loves the ladies and has all these legs around him, and then Sasha comes out in full flame drag, it's just... Again, it's hysterical, but it's not like holding your gut hysterical. So we're just over an hour, and there's more than half an hour to go, and I just have so many more notes. I don't know how I'm going to work them all in. I guess I'll just use this time to talk about empty holes, like this, this giant pretend vagina that Brooks is 
playing in front of here with these rockets. Barnes says that there's lots of holes or empty spaces in the first film that these are planned, and I don't know about that, I think, except for the intelligence scene that I already went over in this film, that the holes of the first film are pretty covered up well. In the second one, I think this is much more simplified, much more streamlined, much funnier. And Barnes says also this, quote, Lubitsch's plots are ingenious, sometimes absurd, but no more absurd than the plots which structure our lives at home or work. What would really be absurd is to think that we could bear life without an ingenious plot or two. For life tends to be an artifice. We are born into stories created by others, and we can only tinker a bit with the details before we die, hopefully leaving a few stories of our own behind. Well, that was deep. So Sasha gets caught, and although the Gestapo has just torn the place apart to look for him, they miss all the Jews in the basement. So the theaters kind of become a concentration camp for Jews in hiding. As we all know, they multiply, and Brooks has that line about the rabbits. Let's stack back a minute and rethink the whole line, that infamous line, what he did to Hamlet, we were doing to Poland. This this infamous line, it upset many people at the time, and it still upsets many people today, and this is understandable. The film, in both of its forms, asks very relevant questions. Barnes asks this in his BFI book. He, he asks, quote, is laughter truly cathartic, or is it just an excuse to let injustice and oppression exist and do nothing, unquote. And you can ask that as you get enraged in watching this scene here. Sasha getting arrested. Lubitsch and Brooks would probably argue that they're doing something, that they are protesting using comedy because they are filmmakers and that's what filmmakers do. I am reminded of Woody Guthrie, who had a sticker on his guitar that said, This machine kills fascism. But it, if there is a line, where is it? And there's not a single instance of Nazi brutality in this movie, nor in the original. And you could ask why, or you could just take it for granted that it exists for the purpose of the story. So look at the shot here in this auditorium. Pandemonium, filled with people, filled with party members and troops, as well as ordinary people. It looks like a shot out of the Man of the High Castle in terms of tone, which is on Amazon Prime, and I recommend it very much. It's based on Philip K. Dick's novel about a counterfactual America of Japan and Germany to win the war. And in tone, it looks very similar to this. I never really thought about that before, but yeah, it looks like America in the 50s. Looks like wartime Poland, and that's pretty sad. And despite the budget of this film, it does have these wide shots that look around and make you get the totality of what's going on. The sets in the streets of Warsaw, the ones inside the auditorium, those are especially well done, and you get the idea that they're not just putting on a show for the audience. And it's not just for us that they're putting a show on, for the Germans too. And that's fitting because that's all the Germans did. They put on shows for everyone, like the Nuremberg rallies. They sold bullshit coated in whipped cream and told everybody it was haute couture dessert. The difference being that one side is acting to kill and the other side is acting to save their lives. Germany was like any developed country or any underdeveloped country for that matter. They loved film. They loved cinema. They still do. Germany has a very rich history with film as art. 
The Weimar years especially saw a huge surge in the arts. It is true that when the Nazis came to power, that many people left, especially the Jews. And they went to Hollywood and they started careers, but not all of the artists left. Generally speaking, we call films in this era, this 12 years of Nazi rule, to be national socialist cinema. And if you're going to get into that, then I recommend the works of Eric Lyncher to go through and start that period. Not all of it was propaganda films like Triumph of the Will by Lenny Riefenstahl. There were other films to that as well, watchable films. Germans didn't respond well to being bombarded with ideology all the time. They rejected a lot of that, of course. What would you expect? As a result, the Nazi filmmaking machine had to pump out some cream puffs to make people go to the movies. One of them was Munchausen, a very popular color film. And another one was Cold, which we will get into a little later, I'm sure. So keep that cream puff stuff in mind when you see this shot. Earhart on the desk, there's a portrait of Hitler in the background, a bust of him against the wall, and Earhart has a swatska on his arm towards the camera as per normal. And what do you see here? What do you see in this whole film? The cream puff. It's an image for sell. It's the image the Nazis want to sell you that only Durning is going to turn this whole thing around. He starts putting the moves on Bancroft here, the sexual predator and so forth, the over-the-shoulder shots. And, and then his, his orgasmic screams, Schultz! So this is evil, but ridiculous evil. Barnes said this in his book that Lubitsch was making the Nazis ridiculously evil instead of heroically evil as in traditional films. You could point to Hangman Also Die by Fritz Lang or Inglorious Bastards by Quentin Tarantino as a parallel for heroically evil, but you won't find much for Mel Brooks' style of slapstick comedies. No heroic evil here. And if Lubitsch was making them look ridiculously evil, Mel Brooks makes them look almost incompetently evil. And you could say that this is even more dangerous than Lubitsch. The line is much more fine here. And we can get into that. A lot of you are going to sigh and you're going to skip this podcast the minute I say this name. And that's fine. You can do it. But I'm going to mention Hannah Arendt. There, I said it. And if you're still listening, you must not know Hannah Arendt, so I'll introduce you to her. She was a Jew who studied under Martin Heidegger before escaping to the United States. And she worked uh, as a hugely influential political sonnetist. And the book that made her famous was this amazing tome called The Origins of Totalitarianism, in which she discussed a lot of what we see here. Her most famous or infamous book, I guess, was called Eichmann in Jerusalem, a study in the banality of evil in which she described a man she thought to be the most horrendous monster in the history of the world, Adolf Eichmann. Eichmann was a high-level bureaucrat in the SS. He arranged all of the transportation, all the trains to carry the Jews to their deaths. The Israelis found him in South America in 1960 and they kidnapped him they took him back to Israel where he stood trial for the Holocaust. So Hannah Arendt asked to go to the trial to report on it for the New Yorker magazine. And she was expecting to find this almost frothing at the mouth monster 
kind of like you see in Hitler in old newsreels, who can't contain himself with his fury, and plainly this guy has lost an egg out of his omelet, but she didn't find that. She was very surprised to find that Eichmann was a very normal person with a very subpar command of the German language. Eichmann did not only not look like Tim Curry in legend, he looked like a bored postal worker flipping through mountains of paperwork. And she called this the banality of evil. Arendt wrote this after Lubitsch and after Brooks, and I have no idea if Brooks ever read that book, but that's not my point. My point is that you can make a movie about Eichmann, but you would probably fall asleep because he's so banal. Or you could make one about concentration camp Earhart and the naughty Nazis, and you'd probably pack a house. The danger in doing this, of course, is relativism. That is, if you believe in relativism. If concentration camp Earhart is this much of a blustering idiot, then what does this say about the idiots like Schultz who are below him and the human garbage above him? Like that gold-plated turd to the right in this coming shot. There. Durning, believe it or not, started in burlesque, and he was one hell of a dancer. And if you look at how he moves across the screen to complete his blocking here, he's very graceful, despite his girth. Watch him move. He dances almost with himself. See that footwork? Schultz! So, let's go back to Kohlberg for a bit, because I brought it up for a reason, and we're going to have plenty of time for it. Kohlberg was this amazing, expensive movie that Goebbels saw as the great end to be this whole propaganda victory near the end of the war. The amount of money that they spent on it and the effort that went into it is just unbelievable. Truckloads of fake snow. They pulled real soldiers off the line against Russia and used them as extras in these 17th century battle scenes in full costume. It's just fucking stupid. Soldiers couldn't have jackets, but they've got costumes for this film. It's like Gone with the Wind in Germany type of thing. The film was finished before the end of the war, but they didn't have a premiere because Berlin was encircled, so supposedly prints of the film were smuggled in or airdropped to certain places to be shown. Just imagine that. Propaganda films while the curtain is dropping on the real stage. The big show is over. So despite pulling off Seletsky and being done, Bronsky goes back into the arms of concentration camp Earhart to get his wife out of the Gestapo, but she doesn't know that she doesn't, he does not know that she doesn't need help, and she does not know that he is not there. So she misses him here, and he puts himself back in danger because unbeknownst to him, they found the real murdered Seletsky, and the madcap escapade into Gestapo is going to make that house of murder look like a hall of mirrors. So we're going back into concentration camp Earhart's office yet again, and Bronsky is going to get pickled just like he was when he met the real Seletsky. He was running out of lines because as an actor, you need to have lines in order to survive. And he's bad at improv. Remember that. He's horribly bad. And that's what tips Seletsky off, that he's not really meeting the real concentration camp of Earhart. But since then, Bronsky has had real success. He's charged in Earhart's office and he's won. So he thinks he can do it again. Total improv. But because his wife isn't here and he's in a real pickle, 
to use a common metaphor that's coming up in this film, and he runs out of lines again. What does an actor do when he runs out of lines? He calls out line, just like in the beginning and the end here, when he says to be or not to be, and he, the guy's got to give him a line. Or he just walks off, just like he's tried to do there. So now he has to improv again. And the beard scene is very manic. It's very funny, and most people watch it as a very benign scene, and they don't think that it's funny at all, and they're just observers to something, and they're not too sure what to think about this scene. And that's what I get out of it. They don't know what to think. What are they supposed to think? This is a dark subject, after all. If they're caught, caught, they're all shot. But you can have dark humor with purpose. You can tell a morbid joke and have the butt of the joke not be the expense of the victim, but to show what evil is in control. Peter Barnes tells this absolutely horrible joke in his book that showcases this, and here it goes. This is not word for word, so I'm not going to quote it. Hitler and Goebbels survived the war and are discovered having dinner in a nice restaurant by a waiter who recognizes them. The waiter asks, what are you two doing here? We're creating the Fourth Reich, says Goebbels. The waiter looks to Hitler and asks, really? Really, yes, Hitler agrees. Only this time, we're going to kill 10 million Jews and six postmen. The waiter is confused. Why six postmen? Hitler then turns to Goebbels and chuckles. See? The Fuhrer laughs. Nobody cares about the Jews. So if you laugh at that joke, what are you laughing at? Are you laughing at the expense of the Jews, who died in millions at the feet of madmen? Or are you laughing at the arcane, pompous, and bigotrous ass that is Adolf Hitler and his marching madmen? I think a joke like that sheds light on the problem that started that war in the first place. Nobody cared about the Jews. And what would have happened if someone did? What if America had taken in every single Jew in Germany? Not only would we have saved them, we would have injected new talent and life into our country and culture, and it would not have affected our country's problems one iota, not one. And each one would have been what the others turned out to be, an American patriot. And that is what that horrible joke signifies. It signifies our society's problem of acceptance, of tolerance, of our bias, and our failure to deal with the situation. And that is a very contemporary problem. We could have helped mitigate the disaster of the Shoah in 1939, but we didn't. And before December 7th, 1941, that is nobody's fault but ours. George Gaines, here on the left, is fantastic. He was born in 1917 in Helsinki, and he passed away, I think, just last year. He might most be known for Punky Brewster's adoptive dad, though he was more like a grandpa. And of course, you know him from Police Academy. He was the one getting the BJ under the podium. Fantastically funny actor. Tootsie, Deadman Don't Wear Plaid. And he's playing this moral indignation 
very well here as an SS officer. I come in here and I see spies and I see homosexuals. What the hell is going on? This is supposed to be Gestapo headquarters and it just snowballs in this huge mass of hysterical Schultz. Right? The orgasm again. Einhardt is believable because he is so over the top, because the Nazis are theater clowns. And as we race towards the finale here, we have to ask, what is going on in the United States in 83? And there is the self-reflexiveness that it's going on, but it's, it's really part way. You have veterans like George Gaines and Mel Brooks and other people that are now getting older. You've got into the war at the age of 20 in 1941, and by 1981, you're 60, which is actually quite young if you think about it. And... At this time, not a lot of veterans were talking, not really. That would come to the mid to late 90s when the clock is really ticking and people really want to know what their grandparents did in the war. But in the 1980s, not really. Most of storytelling about the war was with Hollywood, and it was through the same people who should have been writing books about the war. James Doohan, the actor who played Scotty on Star Trek, was a British combat infantryman. He lost one of his fingers on D-Day. Lots of people served in the war, served in Hollywood's telling of it. And this movie is unique because it is veterans telling the story. But it's from the Polish point of view, not their own. And that's pretty amazing. And what's happening in Poland during this time? That's another good story. Poland was redrawn after the war and its borders moved further west on each side as it became dominated by the Soviet Union over the next four decades. The resistance came when the Soviets became so involved in Afghanistan that they found that they couldn't do everything everywhere. They couldn't pay for troops to go everywhere and do everything they needed them to do. And the satellite states figured this out first. So Poles organized in the late 70s and early 80s and they started a series of strikes, union strikes. And these strikes were very successful because they were working class, because they were the proletariat. And about the time this film came out, Poland was divided between the loyal communists and the union dock workers. And other people loosely united under this umbrella solidarity movement. And it covered everyone, shoremen and truckers, and it just spread. And the government went to the Soviets and asked them for intervention. And the Soviets said, you have to handle this yourself. We can't spare the focus right now. So solidarity grew and grew, and Poland began to splinter off little by little until the Berlin Wall came down, and then it was a free-for-all. And the Soviets eventually pulled out their troops. So Poland was in a very transitional period when To Be or Not To Be came out. And I'm sure everyone who made it read the headlines every day and knew about it. Hitler had his own bodyguard, originally the SS, the Schutzstaffeln. They grew into this massive organization, but the personal unit stayed the same, the Lebensstandarte Adolf Hitler, and they became huge as well informed a unit that went off to fight the war but his personal bodyguard who followed him everywhere they were the same during the war he didn't move very much I don't think he ever went to Warsaw he went to Paris once and either he was in Wolfchanse an eastern complex in East Prussia or another one further out in Ukraine or he was in his Berghof house in uh, Berchtesgaden or outside of Obersalzburg and maybe in his apartment in Munich. And at the end of the war, of course, he was in the Fuhrer bunker in Berlin where he killed himself. So we're going to rely on the absurd to save our lives, and that means using these yellow stars on the clown outfits to make fun of ourselves so that we don't 
stand out. So if you look at the Star of David in this shot, and the meaning of that is powerful. We're going to make fun of the Jews. We're going to make fun of ourselves, even if that means completely degrading ourselves. How emotional is that? Clipping the Star of David. Because we're going to save our lives. This did not happen in the first film. It was just a theater troupe that got out, but that was before the Holocaust. And the remake is after, so of course the script is going to change and it's going to reflect that. We're coming up on a critical moment. The, the movie's morality laid out in Shakespearean monologue. It's a very powerful moment. It's the best in the film. The most serious of the film. It's done by the only Jewish actor in the Bronsky Theater, Lupinski. This woman, of course, is just terrified. So I want to catch up on... Oh, you notice that the Klotsky Clown Hotel? Like, if they had one more K, it'd be like the KKK. So Lipinski's going to go out here and be looking decidedly like Trotsky. He's got the yellow star on, and the bodyguard takes him. And he says throughout the whole film he wants to do Shakespeare because he's a Shakespearean actor and he wants to do Shylock. But this is Bronsky's theater, so Bronsky does Shakespeare, which means no Merchant of Venice, just Hamlet. And not even that. Brooks does highlights from Hamlet because not even Bronsky wants to act through the whole two and a half, three hours that Shakespeare does just to do a few paragraphs of the soliloquy. So as an egoist, he's pretty bad. He won't even do the whole Hamlet. So Lupinski is obviously a Jew, and you see the Star of David himself with, with uh, that hysterical scene when they're going all into the basement to avoid the bombing in the beginning of the film. And he's going to repeat to Hitler here, well, to Brooks dressed up as Hitler, but nobody else knows, the famous speech from The Merchant of Venice. And the look on George Winter's face and Tim Matheson's face here is just priceless. If you wrong us, do we not revenge? And remember all those other actors are Gentiles and they see this from the outside and they are moved all the same because they are among the righteous and those who protect Jews, not because they have some secret affinity for Jews, but the, or that they want to become Jews, but because they recognize it is the good, decent, Christian thing to do to save those who worship the same God I do. And that's what being a member of the righteous is. But the Shylock thing is powerful, but it's really problematic in a number of ways. The Merchant of Venice used to be seen as this rare look into toleration in Elizabethan England. If you really study that time period, you'll see that there's nothing tolerant about it at all. Some people have argued that Shakespeare could not have been anti-Semitic because of the display, and that's just horseshit. Of course he was. All Shakespeare was doing at the time was encapsulating Shylock's views, and he did this very well, which is why that monologue has stood the test of time. Jew hands, Jew eyes, all the rest of it. And the idea that he's speaking to Hitler, of all people, Lupinski, I mean, as if he'd never met a Jew. And I, I, don't, I don't even know if Hitler ever had. And the look on George Winter's face is telling Lupinski is giving the performance of his life, of a Jew's life. It has value, just like all the Jews in Bronsky's basement. If you wrong us, will we not be revenged? This was very profound to me when I saw this. Even at the age of eight or nine, the Jews never got their revenge, not even out of Eichmann. And neither did the Sinti or the Roma or the Czechs or the French or the disabled. And the list goes on and on and on. Not even the Brits, really. The only side that really got their revenge were the Soviets who destroyed Berlin almost to the last stone 
and who keep what's left of Hitler's skull in a cardboard box in the KGB archives. Boom. Charles Durning. The banality of evil returns. He earned an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor for playing Concentration Camp Earhart in 1984. He didn't get it, but the fact that he was nominated, that this film, which no one really watches anymore, that this performance stood out, just think about that. He won the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor for this film. And Anne Bancroft won a Golden Globe for Best Actress in a Musical or Comedy for this film. And I love this line coming up here where Brooks as Bronsky as Hitler. <laughs> Is there enough acting going on? Comes in here and says, are you the one who called me a pickle? In the first movie, it was a bad smelling cheese, but after 40 years, that was no longer funny. A pickle is funnier because Hitler is a sourpuss. Look at these legs. The two screenwriters, Ronnie Graham, who plays the theater manager again and shouts everywhere, and Thomas Beam, they received the Writers Guild Award for their adaptation of Meyer's original script for this movie. Brooks and Bancroft received awards in the Italian circuit for Best Actor and Actress. So this film wasn't totally ignored. It just seems to have not have fared very well. And it's very confusing to me. Because like I said, I'm a fan of this film. And it's got many charms to it. Here's the pickle line. If we can go back to the clown car a minute, I'd like to point out something that I think is happening there. The clown car isn't in the first film because there isn't a basement full of Jews to get out there. But if you look at the clown car as an escape, it's an escape from this horrible nightmare to be sure, but I think it mimics the ending of Blazing Saddles when the camera pulls back and they're on the Warner set. And the whole point of that in Blazing Saddles is, hey, all this bullshit that we've been laughing about for the past hour and a half, well, we're still dealing with it in modern day. And in that way, and because of that film and that shot, I think Blazing Saddles helped kill the Western. Genocide and racism wasn't okay anymore. And the downfall of the Westerns that started way before that came out seemed to just go to nothing about the time Blazing Saddles came out. I, I feel the same about this film. There were World War II comedies, not just after the war, but even during the war. There were propaganda films, to be sure, like uh, This is the Army with Ronald Reagan, but then you had Four Jills in a Jeep and Bob Hope's travelogue comedies. And even after the war, you had comedies about it. Really critical ones like uh, Catch-22 that was based on Joseph Heller's novel or Kelly's Heroes, which again, my son loves and all of that. And so they go up to To Be or Not To Be in 1983, but you don't see any after that. You've got Life is Beautiful and that's about it. And so I think this film did that, or it helped to do that with Life is Beautiful, I think it killed the World War II comedy film. And I don't want to pass judgment on it like that, like it was a good thing or a bad thing or, or whatever. And I don't think Brooks meant to do that at the time, and he may even really disagree with that point of view, but I think there was a time around here when this picture came out and people said, hey, that's not okay to joke about the war. And I think this film exemplifies 
that attitude, or maybe the failure of this film to stand the test of time exemplifies that attitude. I don't think it's a direct or, or directional, meaning I don't think people are saying, well, that idea sucked, let's stay away from World War II comedies. I just don't think that that at all. I, in fact, I think this film argues that those types of formats could be a success, but you just don't see any more after this. It's kind of like this plane taking off, a success, and the dog can represent anything you want, purity, courage. I'd like to think of it as the spirit of Poland that's gonna come back someday. Like the Bronskis took a little bit of Poland with them to Britain. But you know that's not gonna happen. Because Poland is really, truly going to cease to exist in a lot of ways after the war. Like this plane taking off, a success. I don't know if Brooks intended this or not, but it looks like he did. Like he kind of does a, a Sieg Heil coming up here. And then everyone in the plane, all the Jews, they go back to the plane. And I'm not sure if that's a comment on the prejudice they are about to experience as Jews or Poles in an adoptive home or what. So as they fly to safety, I think it's worth remembering for a moment that Poland is not completely innocent. Poland was, and to some extent still is, a very anti-Semitic country. Lots of Poles participated in the Holocaust. You can argue that they didn't have a choice. You can argue that they had a gun to the head. You can argue a lot of things. But Poland is not a morally clean country during the war. They lost, for sure, twice. Once at the beginning of the war, and then again at the end of the war. They lost almost half their population and all the rest of it, but many Poles were perfectly happy to see their Jewish neighbors go up in smoke. And that's the truth. So anyway, I guess that way, I, I guess real life is more theatrical than the theater. But I do think comedy is important, especially here. I think comedy wins, and I think this film wins. So I missed a couple of my favorite lines, Heil Hitler, Heil Myself, always love that. I wanted to point out that George Winter is in Spaceballs, my favorite line of his in that film is, what's the matter, Colonel Sanders, chicken. That's always a riot. And this scene, by far, has the best line in the film. As far as historical humor is concerned, it's the best. This great pub environment, Churchill memorabilia is on the wall to the right where you came in, and Hitler at this point, especially after Churchill becomes Prime Minister of Great Britain after the fall of France, and after May of 1940 especially, he was easily the most hated man in Britain. And here he comes. Mel Brooks, ladies and gentlemen. And this line kills me every time. Excuse me. Is this England? <laughs> Stout. And this scene is right out of every British spy movie about the war you've ever seen. Those two might as well be Trevor Howard and Richard Burton and Maury Torrey or where Eagles Dare or just pick one. Very coy, very cool, very British. Reminds me of Mike Myers and his cameo in Inglorious Bastards. It shows how very solid knowledge of the genre Alan Johnson has. I saw a documentary on the history of film a few years ago and there was the screenwriter a very popular one whose name I don't remember you're going to have to forgive me but 
he saw all those Busby Berkeley movies in the 30s and he hated them. And that informed his attitude when he worked in Hollywood as a screenwriter. And he saw them when he was older and he really liked them. And what does that tell us or him or whatever? The film over time doesn't change. I know you have cuts and additions and all of this other stuff. I get that. But for the most of the time and for most films, the film itself does not change. So what changes over time? You change. And I hope that you can look at this film for the first time and appreciate Brooks's very subtle slant on Lubitsch. And if you have seen this before and you didn't like it, I'm hoping that you've changed over time and you'll give this film a second chance. Because it really needs it. Because it's a great and funny film. And if that happens, excuse me, pardon me, excuse me, pardon me, then we can chalk it up to the bard said to what Brooks as Bronski as Hamlet says here, outrageous fortune. Thanks for hanging out with me while we watch To Be or Not To Be, 1983. I hope you found this interesting whether you watched with the commentary on in your home or just listened in your car. The Super 70 Podcast is brought to you by Dylan Davis. That's me. You can find me, my podcast, and my books, and my blog at www.thatdylandavis.com where you can leave a comment under the Super 70 Podcast tab. The Super 70 Podcast is available on SoundCloud and iTunes. All music on this podcast was written and recorded by Rosalind McPhail and Joshua Cunningham. You can reach them both on soundcloud.com. If you're offended by the interpretation of this film, please let me know by sending me an email at thatdylandavis at gmail.com. If you like the podcast, please express this on iTunes or SoundCloud by leaving a rating and a review. You can also find me on Twitter at ThatDylanDavis and find my books on Amazon.com. This is Dylan Davis, and we'll meet next time playing Strip Croquet at Westerberg High School.